Good morning. This is the November 24th episode of the Daily Wrestling News Show, where we're on a mission to teach, learn, and remember the history of professional wrestling with everyone who wants to join us. My name is John, and on today's episode, we're talking about what seminal event in wrestling history took place on this day in 1983. On November 24, 1983, the NWA and Jim Crockett Promotions held the first ever Starcade event in front of more than 15,000 fans in North Carolina's famous Greensboro Coliseum. The show was subtitled A Flare for the Gold, F-L-A-R-E for the Gold. The sold-out show pulled in a gate of more than a half a million dollars. For perspective, WrestleMania 1 in New York City nearly 18 months later would do roughly the same amount of money in ticket sales while hosting an estimated 19 to 22,000 fans. Suffice to say, Starcade was a hot and not inexpensive ticket for that time. The event was said to be the brainchild of Jim Crockett and Dory Funk Jr., though some credit Barry Windham and Dusty Rhodes for the concept. From most reports, Funk was the booker on this show and the storylines leading up to it. Dusty most definitely came up with the name and would go on to book subsequent Starcades for years to come. One of the things that made this event so important is that, in an attempt to compete with Vince McMahon's new national vision for wrestling via cable television and such, Jim Crockett Promotions would make Starcade available in bars and movie theaters via closed-circuit television. While you still couldn't sit home and watch the show like you can these days, and while a winter storm in the southern U.S. where it was primarily available led to disappointing numbers, this was clearly the model the WWF would follow in 85 for WrestleMania and the precursor to the wrestling pay-per-view so many of us enjoyed growing up. It was an eight-match card, but it had three clear heavy hitters. The Briscoe brothers defended the NWA World Tag Team Championships against Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. In this match, due to past skullduggerous efforts by the champs, the titles could change hands by DQ. The stipulation wouldn't come into play, though, as special guest referee Angelo Mosca would make the count after Steamboat scoop-slammed Jerry Briscoe, then gorilla-pressed his partner Youngblood into a splash that led to the 1-2-3 to crown new champions. When I first decided to research this event, I did so with the idea that I could break down the main event and that would be enough. It would be called a flare for the gold, so at first glance I thought maybe this was Rick's first world championship. But no, 83, that's too late to be his first title. So while researching, I found that this was indeed the start to Flair's second reign, but a closer look revealed that due to creative bookkeeping, it might have been his sixth. Huh? So I pivoted to start telling that story, which got so convoluted I quickly got a headache. WWE goes with Flair being the 16-time champion for advertising and merchandising reasons, but there are arguments for that number to go as high as 19, 21, even 25, depending on who you ask. Maybe that's a story for another day all by itself. Then I read a couple of reviews for this show and found that just as many people wanted to talk about a gimmick match in the middle of the show as they did the main event. Well, that's because the gimmick match was the famous Roddy Piper-Greg Valentine dog collar match. I knew of this match, and I had seen bits and pieces of it, but what I didn't know was this match was a first of its kind. As I approach 50 years on this spinning blue marble, most of the time as a wrestling fan, I almost always assume that anything that happens in the wrestling business was done before in some form or another. 
But the Piper-Valentine dog collar match was something brand new in 1983. And the sheer brutality of that first ever attempt keeps it on the minds and in the mouths of wrestling fans to this day as we approach 40 years since the event. It's as unsettling today as it was in 1983. The big difference is, in 1983, it was still mostly a secret that the endings in professional wrestling were predetermined and that the main job of the performers was actually to protect their opponents. The fans in Greenboro that night thought they were witnessing two men trying to kill each other. Piper had suffered an injury in his left ear in a previous fight during this same feud, so Valentine targeted the ear early and it wasn't long before blood was dripping from the side of Piper's head. A shot to the ear with the chain later in the match not only broke Piper's eardrum, but cost him 50% of the hearing in that ear permanently. Piper is selling so beautifully from the opening bell though, it's hard to tell at what point his broken eardrum is genuinely affecting his equilibrium. When Piper makes a comeback a little more than halfway through the match, the crowd swell completely drowns out Gordon Soley's commentary for several seconds. How real was it to some people in attendance? You've heard of the cliché screaming bloody murder? Well, after Piper pulls Valentine off the second buckle and hogties him for the three count in the win, Valentine goes back on the offensive post-match. As Valentine gets Piper out on the apron's edge and begins choking him from inside the ring, Piper appears to be legitimately turning blue. Another crowd swell drowns out the commentary again, and several distinctly female voices can be heard shrieking in a way only possible in the presence of perceived genuine danger. As grainy as the video is, this match truly stands the test of time. And then there was the main event. World Champion Harley Race defending the NWA title against a prime Nature Boy Ric Flair inside a steel cage. Flair's entrance was special for the time. As his music starts and the lights go out, the horns of Strauss's sunrise blare throughout the Coliseum. I've been in that building for a concert, and just watching and listening on Peacock, I got goosebumps imagining my body reverberating as the sounds filled the deceptively cramped building. Flair's Carolina blue and silver robe is spectacular. The champ's entrance is much quieter, except for the boos. The crowd is decidedly behind Flair. In the lead up to this match, Harley Race offered a $25,000 cash bounty to take Flair out, one that Dick Slater and Cowboy Bob Orton tried unsuccessfully to collect more than once. Former world champion and well-known Canadian tough guy Gene Kaniski serves as special guest referee, and he's way too involved in this match. He's got his hands on the competitors after almost every exchange. He's constantly in the way, yet somehow still always out of position and late to start the counts. But Flair and Race are pros pros and rarely seem to even notice. Flair gets busted open early on. Race gets some color as well, but Flair's platinum locks seem to capture just the right amount of blood to frame the crimson mask in a way that is picturesque. Late in the match, Race accidentally headbutts Kaniski because he's in the damn way again. While Kaniski is down, Flair climbs the buckles, and I'm already giggling to myself, expecting a fantastical crash and burn. I've seen 200 or more Ric Flair matches, and I've never seen this work out for him. Well, son of a bitch, if Flair doesn't hit a decent high crossbody, sending Race flipping backwards, possibly tripping over the feet of the downed referee, and it's good enough for the three count. 
We've got a new world's champion. No wonder Flair kept going back to that well. It won him a title. The cage fills with well-wishers from the locker room, and Steamboat helps place the 10 pounds of gold around Flair's waist. Gordon Soley says it's Flair's third time as champ, so clearly they weren't completely sure what to make of some of those title exchanges back in the early 80s either. Flair would begin his second reign as NWA World Champion, according to WWE's record books at least, and ending Race's seventh title run. And if you don't count the three-day reign where Flair dropped the title to Race on an international tour show in New Zealand, only to win it back 72 hours later in Singapore, which the WWE doesn't count by the way, then this was Race's final reign coming to an end and a true passing of the torch. And as this bitter feud ends, Flair's next opponent was all too obvious. Dusty Rhodes made sure every time a mic was within reach throughout the night to let everyone know that he wanted the winner. Dusty would even interrupt the champagne celebration backstage to reiterate that fact. Starcade would become a holiday season tradition. It began on a Thanksgiving day before eventually moving closer and closer to Christmas and would continue an 18 year run through the final days of WCW in 2000. And WWE even brought it back in 2017, 18, and 19. But it all started on this day in wrestling history, November 24th, 1983. Well, that's our show for today. If you'd like to continue the conversation about Piper Valentine, Flair Race, or WWE's questionable bookkeeping practices, I encourage you to join the Daily Wrestling News Show Facebook group. You can go to facebook.com groups slash wrestling news show or just search for Daily Wrestling News Show. Either way, click join and we'll let you in to talk about Ric Flair, Starcade, or any historical wrestling topic. And if we don't see you there, we'll see you right back here for another episode of the Daily Wrestling News Show.